Well, I don't want to begin by contradicting your pastor in any way, shape, or form, but I would have you know that you are all Methodists, every one of you here this morning, and I'll tell you why as we proceed on a little bit further. And did I not know that the hymns we sang this morning were written by Charles Wesley? I would say they were written by a Presbyterian, in fact, for I find so much um, good Calvinistic thinking in, of all places, uh, Charles Wesley's hymns. And uh, certainly that was uh, evident in the hymn we just sang, such an invigorating uh, presentation of truth in that hymn. And I was not aware uh, of our first meeting when I was there for the seminary class that your pastor was in. There were, I'm not sure how many young men there, but I remember meeting with them. And uh, I had flown across the Atlantic the night before and uh, Pastor Greer picked me up at the bus station or the train station somewhere there in Belfast because my flight was into Dublin, Ireland. And uh, so I came up to Belfast and Pastor Greer picked me up and took, him, took me to his class and asked me to say a few words to them. And I was certainly pleased to do so. And I remember it distinctly because it was the day that Donald Trump was beating Hillary Clinton. And that was a great day to remember, in my estimation. And um, the uh, young men were there and very responsive. And when I talked to them a little bit about Trump, um, because that was certainly on my mind, I made the comment that um, he had been brought up in the congregation of Norman Vincent Peale, who was a positive thinking minister, false teacher in New York City and uh, commented to them that in my upbringing, the thought was that Paul is appealing and Peel is appalling. And indeed, <laughs> the young men responded very well to that. And so um, I remember that day with them very well. By the way, not to get off of the subject, I already am off of the subject, but uh, the only good thing that uh, Barack Obama uh, did as president, in my estimation, was on that very day as well, because I was booked on a flight from Philadelphia to Dublin and had been late getting my reservations in, so I was assigned to the middle of a three-row seat. And you never want to sit on either side of me on an aircraft, and you can guess why. And so there I was, uh, dreading an all-night flight in the middle row with my knees hitting my chin. Well, Hillary Clinton was having a <clears throat> final campaign rally in Philadelphia that night, and Barack Obama was coming to promote her as the next president, and consequently the airspace around the Philadelphia airport was shut down, and all of the connecting flights to the one I was leaving on didn't arrive, so that there was a whole row of empty seats for me to take on that flight across the day. So I've said since then, this is the best thing that Barack Obama ever did and has my gratitude for it. But uh, turning to the serious subject of the matter, I would invite you to open the scriptures to uh, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, where I will read together uh, a few verses from the Word of God concerning preaching and the preaching of the cross. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at the 17th verse, let us all hear the word of God. For Christ sent me not to baptize, <clears throat> but to preach the gospel, 
not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are were not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I'll conclude our reading with the 29th verse and turn to the message of the morning, which is focusing upon the preaching of the cross, preachers of the cross, men who were deemed base, foolish, and yet who were mighty in the power of God. <clears throat> Let me just mention a couple things by way of introduction. As I've been asked to discuss uh, Methodist preaching, early Methodist preaching, one may have the question, what does Methodism have to do with the Reformation? And it's a fair question. It's the one I had to confront as well. I would speak of Methodism as a child or perhaps grandchild of the Reformers. Indeed, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517. John Wesley, who is viewed as the founder of Methodism, was born in 1703. So you're looking at about 200 years difference there. And yet, we know from the time of the Reformation how wicked King Henry VIII in England had been a, a champion of the papacy, had been recognized by the Pope as a great defender of the faith because of a book he had written, a defense of the doctrine of transubstantiation of the Church of Rome. But... When Henry VIII couldn't get the divorce he wanted, approved by the Pope, he decided to become a Protestant. Strange these things are. And of course, I'm speaking in some generalities here to 
quickly get through that little piece of the history. And so the Church of England came into being out of that sequence of events. And Henry, of course, taking the Roman church from Rome and claiming it for himself as the Church of England was to be the head of the church, as has been the case ever since. And as King Charles is now the head of the Church of England, which still I struggle to understand and contemplate. Well, within the Church of England, very soon uh, there was a mere formalism that developed, and as the 200 years or so passed, Wesley was born into the home of an Anglican Church of England clergyman. And in time, Wesley, observing simply the dead formalism of religion, uh, was moved of God, I have no question. And he and his brother Charles were converted and became founders of Methodism, not that they intended to found any religious movement, but God was working in a mighty way, and I trust that I'm given sufficient clarity today in order to bring some examples of that out. And so, therefore, the Methodists, having formed, been formed out of the Church of England, which was indeed a Reformation church, are the children, at least, if not grandchildren, of the Reformation. And indeed, every one of us is impacted by the Reformation every day of our lives in ways we do not perceive. And so studying the development of the Methodist movement and how God used that is certainly relevant, I believe, to studying the impact of and consequences of the heritage and legacy of the Protestant Reformation. Having said that, let me make a second comment concerning a technique today. I will be reading much of the message that I have to bring to you, and that is not my characteristic generally. <laughs> Pastor Eshelman, who many of you know, my esteemed successor in the pulpit in Maryland, uh, did his seminary training here at Geneva Reformed Seminary, and he told me that in the homiletics course taught by Reverend John Wagner, that uh, Professor Wagner told them um, only John McKnight can preach without notes. <laughs> In other words, don't you dare try it. And um, I, I think he's on the, the better side of that equation as well. Um, I've made it my practice to take as few notes as possible into the pulpit with me, but as I trust you will understand as we progress this morning, uh, it would not be possible for me to convey to you the message before us uh, without having uh, a rather clear manuscript of much of it. And so I will be reading some today. And uh, if you don't like that, come back tonight and uh, I'll really let her rip. Okay, we'll put it that way. <laughs> a third item. I will be talking about preachers and their preaching. And as I once heard it put and agree, Preaching is not something you talk about. Preaching is something you do. And therefore, while this has a bit of historical content to it, 
I don't want it to be a red lecture of history as much as I appreciate the lectures of historians. I want it to be a preaching of divine truth. As it stands, a bit of that preaching will be by reading the preaching of other ministers, namely the early Methodist ministers. So having made that point, my guilt is a little uh, relieved and uh, we'll proceed on with uh, what I trust will be an edifying preaching of truth to each of you in the course of the message. Christianity in England was at a very low ebb in the 18th century. From its most exalted clerics to its lowest laity, with rare exception, it was a spiritual void. The supreme head of the Church of England, as you know, is the British monarch. And in succession, the four Georges, as they are referred to, held that office from 1714 through 1830. And of their rule, one Methodist historian has written that there was the high, prerog the high prerogative of kings and princes was to break all of the Ten Commandments, and the more frequently they did so, the more they did display the dignity and power of their office, since nothing could be a greater proof of royalty than a fearless disobedience of the law of God. That was the spirit of the age. Few churchmen took religion seriously as a matter of heart. The few serious bishops that there were were powerless to bring about change. Worldliness prevailed among them. And a commentary of the whole is reported in the fact that Archbishop Cornwallis was requested by the king to cease from the frequent balls and levities for which he had become widely known. One bishop commented that the church, quote, was an ecclesiastical system under which the people of England had lapsed into heathenism or a state hardly to be distinguished from it. Bishop J.C. Ryle in the 1800s, a sound theologian and earnest contender for the faith, gave this indicting assessment of 18th century English clergy. The vast majority of them were sunk in worldliness and neither knew nor cared anything about their profession. They neither did good themselves nor liked anyone else to do it for them. They hunted, they shot, they farmed, they swore, they drank, they gambled. They seemed determined to know everything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When they assembled, it was generally to toast church and king and to build one another up in earthly-mindedness, prejudice, ignorance, and formality. When they retired to their own homes, it was to do as little and preach as seldom as possible. 
And when they did preach, their sermons were so unspeakably and indescribably bad that it is comforting to reflect that they were generally preached to empty benches. That's an able man's assessment of the clergy of that age. 18th century England was an unimposing island nation in the North Atlantic, with many of its people illiterate, living in squalid misery, ignorance, oppression, and hopeless poverty. A nation without hegemony, it was further humiliated in defeat by the inferior volunteer army of its American colonies. But one century later, its fortunes were markedly changed. 19th century England blossomed into a world empire, colonizing the uttermost parts of the earth. Exploration, manufacturing, and mining were major industries surpassing other nations. Economic prosperity abounded. Its slave trade had ended thanks to the persistent parliamentary leadership of William Wilberforce. The Sunday schools of Robert Rakes, viewed today as the first of the English public school system, had curtailed illiteracy and become the means to an educated citizenry. A genteel society with biblically-based moral values flourished and useful Christian literature was in continual publication. Multiple agencies were sending missionaries who sacrificed their lives to evangelize distant tribes, resulting in the establishment of Christianity abroad and earning for their century the designation that one church historian has given it, the great century of missions. In one century, England had excelled to such momentous reaches that its language, custom, culture, and dominions encircled and captivated the planet. The Victorian era, named for Queen Victoria, is known not simply as an era of English history, but of world history. As a world empire, it was a powerful force for the propagation of biblical Christianity and its indisputable and escapable consequence, civilization. Bishop Ryle attributed this profound transformation to a single cause, the preaching of a group of reviled clergymen. They were excluded from the Church of England, ignored by many of the dissenting clergymen, viewed askance by persons of social rank, and mocked and assaulted by coarse and vulgar thugs. But among the common folk, they were instruments of great change, and the power of God upon their preaching made them influential far beyond their social rank and economic means. They changed the British Isles, and thus, the world. Prominent among them were men of the Methodist societies. An example of the reforming power of their work is found in Wil William Wilberforce, whose career-long parliamentary campaign against slavery succeeded with its outlaw in 1807 
leading to England's act of emancipation of 1833, whereby slavery was wiped out in British dominions as well. Wilberforce was converted to Christ under the ministry of John Wesley, whose tract opposing slavery preceded by 13 years the 1787 establishment of the London Society for the Suppression of Slavery. Wesley's last letter to Wilberforce, written from his deathbed, included this exhortation. I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. And yet another noble example, noteworthy example, is found in the relationship between George Whitfield and our founding father, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin being a great admirer of Whitfield. Indeed, the Methodist movement expanded rapidly amid vigorous resistance from establishment clerics and ruffians to vast reaches of common people imparting evangelical doctrine and truth's ultimate vindication, the conversion of souls. These Methodists were at the very core of the evangelical awakening in 18th century England. And it is notable and instructive that France... England's neighbor, officially committed to the opposite, absolute secularism and the removal of God consciousness from the public sphere. England emerged from the Methodist revival soaring to domestic peace, prosperity, and world empire. France suffered a bloody revolution. Again, Ryle, Bishop Ryle, commends those preachers for three qualities. First, they preached wherever they were, often outdoors where multitudes thronged. And they did so because they were excluded from the pulpits of many churches. They preached in churchyards, in marketplaces, and wherever they could gain a hearing from the people. Second, they're preaching was simple, and though they were men of learning, they expounded their messages for the simplest of hearers to understand. Third, they preached with a zeal that confirmed their convictions. Their fervent proclamation left no doubt that they fully believed the message they preached and that their lives were devoted to its truth. Now, it should be remembered that the Methodists, like the Anabaptists two centuries earlier, were named by foes who observed minimal shared characteristics 
among people with diverse beliefs and assigned them a name of scorn that reflected those few common beliefs. It is not primarily a theological position, Methodism that is, and this is an observation of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Methodism is not primarily a theological position or even a theological attitude. Methodism was not a movement designed to reform theology. Methodism is essentially experimental or experiential religion. Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century leader of the Free Church of Scotland said, Methodism is Christianity in earnest. Which is why I say, I think you are all Methodists. May it be that all of us are, if that be what Methodism is. I want now to focus on four of these early Methodists. Time will not allow us to go into great detail regarding their lives, but I simply trust you might become acquainted with them a little better by hearing some of what they said in their preaching. Of course, John Wesley is a name known to any professed believer who has been in church very long. And we've already alluded to him and do not need to say a lot about him because he is already quite well known. A second one whose preaching we will consider is George Whitfield. And just as we don't need to say a whole lot about Wesley because he is so well known, Whitfield, especially today in the Reformed circles, is well known as a crusading biblical preacher of Calvinistic truth during the colonial era, both in the United States, in North America, and in England, and a man whose ministry was indeed owned of God in a great and powerful manifestation of souls being saved and brought into the kingdom of God. So we needn't say too much about George Wesley, although I will read uh, George Wesley, George Whitfield, there we go. You'll find I do that from time to time just to see if you're really listening and with me, okay? You got that? Uh, George Whitfield was not George Wesley. George Whitfield uh, had this to say near the end of his life concerning being a Methodist. I am one of these Methodists. And blessed be God, I have had the honor of being one of them for about 35 years. A real Methodist is one of those whom God hath chosen in Christ out of mankind to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they who be endued with so excellent a benefit of God are called according to God's purpose by his spirit working in due season. They, through grace, obeying the call, they be justified freely and made the sons of God by adoption. They are conformed to the image of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works and at length, by God's mercy, they attain everlasting felicity. And so reading that definition, I say again, may we all be Methodists of this sort. Whitfield did not establish any denomination. Wesley did. He organized converts into societies, Wesley did. And 
Whitfield's unexpected death as a relatively young man by our standards in his 50s uh, meant that his lifespan and effectiveness was much shorter than Wesley's, who organized and imprinted the Methodist society as a movement with his own theological thinking. And consequently, Methodism is generally perceived and has largely been, indeed, a Wesleyan-Arminian um, group of believers. Although, as an evangelical Methodist, the statement of doctrine is 25 articles of John Wesley, which were taken from the 39 articles of the Church of England. And as I told the brethren yesterday morning, if you let me define every word in there, I have no problem embracing the 25 articles of Wesley uh, for uh, my own expression of divine faith and truth. Wesley, though ministering more than 60 years until he was 88 years of, of age, had a whole lot more time to impact and influence the Methodist movement than Whitfield had. But the Welch Methodists were indeed Calvinistic Methodists, and we will deal with that uh, as well. In fact, perhaps right now I should look that direction. There is a man some of you may have heard of by the name of Howell Harris. He was a Welshman and became a powerful and effective preacher in Wales. Less known than Wesley and Whitfield, Harris was highly effective Methodist preacher in Wales. And again, I go to uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was himself a Welsh Methodist, known for his 20th century expositional ministry, who maintains that Welsh Methodism, in fact, preceded English Methodism. He points to the fact that whereas George Whitfield was converted in 1736, and the Wesley brothers in 1738, the two prominent leaders of the Welsh revival and Methodists were converted in 1735. These men, Howell Harris and the other, Daniel Rowland, are little known to us because they preached in Welsh. How many of you read Welsh? The English empire expanded to the whole world and the English language as well. And so the messages of Whitfield and Wesley that were put into print would go around the world and have a readership wherever they went. Whereas messages of Roland and Harris were limited pretty much to Wales and to the Welsh-speaking people. But they conducted in the Welsh language and to the Welsh-speaking people a ministry as profound and marked as did Wesley and Whitfield in the English world. We just don't know about them. And Roland and Harris, as we've noted, were converted before Wesley and Whitfield. And they both, very early in their conversion, were gripped with an earnestness and a power for the preaching of the gospel which began in their own circles before 
Wesley and Whitfield had come to the full understanding that would eventually mark their own zeal and passion. And for that reason, Martin Lloyd-Jones, admittedly, as a Welchman, might have had some biases that direction, maintained that Methodism truly began in Wales. And in fact, Howell Harris and Daniel Rowland who never knew one another until they were converted and came together by means of gospel preaching. They did not know Wesley and Whitfield either, but these were brought together by what was evidently um, not a coincidence, but a unified movement of the Spirit of God at that time, both in Wales and in England, which would culminate in the evangelical revival that is associated with the Methodist preachers of that era. And it is a work of God, not simply a work of coincidence, that he saved each in his perfect timing and brought them to the fore in the preaching of God's truth at that time. Howell Harris was rather eccentric. Many of God's servants have been. I once uh, heard a, a brother inquire as to how many of us would really want John the Baptist as a neighbor or the prophets of the Old Testament, many of them. As such it is that God took these men who in the eyes of the religious establishment of the age were to be outcasts, base, simple, they were called enthusiasts. It's a good name as I think of it, but it was a bad name then. People who've simply gone to seed on religion, insane with their beliefs. Well, that is how they were treated. In fact, that is the place of these men of whom I speak this morning. So, Recognizing, uh, by the way, I'll just make one more observation. The idea that Methodism began in Wales with the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists uh, was originally put forth, uh, apparently, by one William Williams. Have you heard of William Williams? I know the, the music people have. William Williams is the author of that stirring, rousing hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. You've sung it, haven't you? And it's a great one to sing, and a great truth to sing, a great prayer to pray. Uh, that was William Williams, who had become the poet laureate of Wales. And he was also a prominent figure in the evangelical awakening and revival that took place there in Wales as a poet and as a hymn writer. And he, again, a Welshman, perhaps biased, uh, toward their position uh, was of the opinion that these uh, things of Methodism began uh, among the Welshmen before they did among the English. Well, both English and Welsh Methodism emerged as an amazing unified work of one spirit who saved, animated, and united men who were strangers to one another who from different places and backgrounds advanced one powerful phenomenon, the Methodist preaching of the 18th century 
evangelical awakening. And so these men despised and rejected by the powers that be were in fact owned by God himself and used by God in a wonderful way. Now, I want to deal for a few minutes with what it is they preached because that is the heart of the message this morning. What kind of preaching was it that transformed these nations, that brought England out of the squalor that it suffered into the world dominion that it owned one century later? What is the message which will bring about such transformation of societies by means of transforming the individuals of which those societies are made. That's the message for today. And there were seven themes that we can identify in the preaching of these men, which I want to present to you and illustrate each with some excerpts from their preaching. The first of those themes that stands forth as I consider their preaching was the fact of the scriptures being the reliable and accurate word of God. No revival will ever take place apart from the scriptures. It is not by means of Wesley's organization or Whitfield's eloquence and persuasiveness that these revivals came. It is by means of the scripture. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What armies can never accomplish, the scripture can bring to pass. How else might England have been changed? By some external force coming in and trying to reprogram the society? Nothing could change it. But change came, and it came by the preaching of the Word of God. Their preaching affirmed repeatedly the sufficiency of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. They believed that, and upon that basis they stood courageously against all of the forces of men to proclaim the truth of God's word. They predated this age when rationalism overtook professed Christendom, when it became fashionable for clergymen to deny biblical reliability, their statements leave no doubt that they believed in the absolute reliability of the Word of God. A tract written by Daniel Rowland, the Welch preacher, to encourage Bible reading included this affirmation. Some go so far as to make a satire of the Holy Scriptures, and others employ all their reason to oppose and refute God's truth. 
But their folly is no more than an attempt at devising means to quench the light of the sun from shining. They shall know that heaven and earth shall pass before God's word fails. And yet, as such obstinate fools confuse and disturb the minds of insecure and fickle, corrupting many and grieving weak Christians, it is necessary for God's messengers, ministers of the gospel, to stand in the breach and oppose these enemies of the cross of Christ. In a sermon that urged the necessity of salvation, John Wesley began with this note on biblical authority and reliability. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, shall see the face of God in glory. Nothing under heaven can be more sure than this, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And though heaven and earth pass away, yet his word shall not pass away. As well, therefore, might God fall from heaven as his word fall to the ground. When Howell Harris determined that it was his duty to serve in the militia against the anticipated French invasion, he was willing to serve his country and thus his Lord even unto death. He perceived in the intentions of France not simply nationalist ambition, but the papal ambition to subdue Protestantism. He wrote then regarding Scripture, I am resolutely and coolly determined to go freely and conscientiously and die in the field of battle in defense of the precious Word of God, the Bible, against popery. Who can sufficiently set forth the value of a book wherein God speaks, and that to all ranks, degrees, ages, and languages of men? Who can set it forth in his own real majestic glory? Oh, the infinite, unfathomable depth of the glory and divine wisdom and love that are in it. The glory of the sun is nothing in comparison to the glory of this valuable treasure, which is indeed the image of God himself drawn by himself. A book which he has made the standard touchstone and rule to try even his own work by, whereby all spirits, doctrine, ministry, and church discipline, all faith, love, truth, and obedience are proved. A book that God has referred all men to, from the monarch to the peasant, the universal teacher of all men. Here is the seed whence the church and her faith are begotten, and herein is she purified and nursed. I go freely, without compulsion, to show the regard I have for the privileges we enjoy under our best of kings, our ineffable privileges, especially the precious gospel of our Savior contained in the whole book of God, which now is openly read throughout the kingdom." every person being suffered to exhort his neighbor without molestation. You get the idea that he kind of trusted in Scripture. John Wesley's writings included these remarks regarding Scriptures made within the context of refuting Romanist claims for sacred tradition. He said, The Scripture, therefore, being delivered by men divinely inspired, 
is a rule sufficient of itself, so it needs neither so it neither needs nor is capable of any further addition. Again, Wesley stated the Bible must be the invention either of good men or angels, bad men or devils, or of God. It could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would nor could make a book and tell lies all the same they were writing it all the time they were writing it, saying, thus saith the Lord, when it was their own invention. It could not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell for all eternity. Therefore, I draw this conclusion, that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration." So many other quotations could be cited of their confidence in the reliability of the Word of God. But a second theme of their preaching was that of human depravity. We are told in the Scriptures that we are all as an unclean thing. We are told that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are told that there is none good, no, not one. That in Adam we all fell and have begotten a nature that is corrupted, that we are utterly depraved. The preaching of these men demonstrated this conviction that human nature is utterly corrupt, ruined, and hopeless, that it is powerless to achieve any change of heart and possesses nothing good by which one might deliver himself from judgment. This bedrock conviction is demonstrated in this excerpt from a sermon preached by Daniel Rowland from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Though you have lost the power of obeying and like Samson are shorn of your strength, yet with God all things are possible. When he said, let there be light, there was light. When he sends out his word, he can heal you. His spirit can quicken your dead souls and enliven your dullest frames. It is in the belief of this that I now address you. And if a divine energy will accompany the word, I make no doubt of rousing you, dead as you are, to a sense of your danger and to an earnest longing after Jesus Christ. Oh, that he would speak to you as he spoke to Lazarus, saying, Come forth! Or in the language of the prophet, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. O that this might be the hour in which the dead among you shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. It is his voice alone that has this vivifying power in all ages of the world. Let not ministers therefore imagine that they can convert souls by their gifts and persuasive eloquence. But let them rely altogether upon his promise who said, Lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. And if any are brought to the Lord, it is this I who stands at the door and knocks and is the efficient cause of it. It is the Holy Spirit that convinces the world of sin. In a sermon on 1 Corinthians 1.30, George Whitfield expounded the 
text Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As he explained how Christ has made righteousness, the righteousness of his people, he affirmed man's inability to produce any righteousness of his own, stating, for Christ's righteousness, or that which Christ has done in our stead without us, is the sole cause of our acceptance in the sight of God and of all holiness wrought in us. To this, and not to the light within, or anything wrought within, should poor sinners seek for justification in the sight of God. For the sake of Christ's righteousness alone, and not anything wrought in us, does God look favorably upon us, and sanctification, our sanctification at best in this life, is not complete, though we be delivered from the power, we are not freed from the in-being of sin." But not only the dominion, but the in-being of sin is forbidden by the perfect law of God. For it is not said, thou shalt not give way to lust, but thou shalt not lust. So that whilst the principle of lust remains in the least degree in our hearts, though we are otherwise never so holy, yet we cannot on account of that hope for acceptance with God. We must first, therefore, look for a righteousness without us, even the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Wesley preached a funeral sermon on the occasion of Whitfield's death. Wesley, often cited as Arminian in theology, made reference to Whitfield's views regarding salvation and his comments included these affirmations. There is no power in man till it is given him from above to do one good work, to speak one good word, or to form one good desire. For it is not enough to say all men are sick in sin. No, we are all dead in trespasses and sin. We are all helpless both with regard to the power and the guilt of sin. For who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? None less than the Almighty. Who can raise those that are dead, spiritually dead, in sin? None but he who raised us from the dust of the earth. But on what consideration will he do this? Not for works of righteousness that we have done. The dead cannot praise thee, O Lord, nor can they do anything for which they would be raised to life. This was indeed consistent with the position that Wesley articulated in those 25 articles, 24 articles of faith that I had mentioned earlier. Original sin is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man. Whereby, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into the world it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. In one of his letters to a young lady, Howell Harris wrote, Our hearts are full of devices 
This world is full of temptations and all our nature is corrupt and draws us from God. Be not surprised if I tell you that you must see yourself as the greatest of sinners, even on the same footing with harlots. For we all are such in hearts, though restrained in the outward conduct. Pray, rest not until you know that your sins are forgiven. The third theme of their preaching is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The fact that when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, it was not simply one who was a victim of strongly held beliefs that others hated, was not simply a martyr who laid down his life for a cause, but in fact was a substitute, the substitute for sinners. This message was proclaimed by these men consistently in John Wesley's treatise on original sin. It includes a discussion on Isaiah 53 in which he expands upon the word born. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He says the word signifies one, to take up something as one on one's shoulders. Two, to bear or carry something weighty as a porter does a burden. Three, to take away. And in all these senses, it is here applied to the Son of God. He carried, as a strong man does a heavy burden, our sorrows, the suffering of various kinds which were due to our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Wounds and bruises are put for the whole of his suffering, as his death and blood frequently are. He was wounded and bruised, not for sins of his own, nor merely to show God's hatred of sin, not chiefly to give us a pattern of patience, but for our sins as the proper impulsive cause. Our sins were the procuring cause of all his sufferings. His sufferings were the penal effects of our sins. The chastisement of our peace, the punishment necessary to procure it, was laid on him, freely submitting thereto. And by his stripes, a part of his suffering again put for the whole, we are healed. Pardon, sanctification, and final salvation are all purchased and bestowed upon us. Every chastisement is for some fault. That laid on Christ was not for his own but ours. It was needful to reconcile an offended lawgiver and offending guilty creatures to each other. Hal Harris, in a letter to a Mrs. Whitfield, wrote, Who can set forth the riches of his death and the unfathomable abyss of his sufferings? The inexpressible evil of sin appears here more clearly than in all the miseries of the damned. Here I should see, had I greater faith, more of the riches of grace, the perfections of God, the nature of the law, the evil of sin, the way of salvation, than all the wisdom and reasoning of the world could ever discover. Hither let us repair, my dear sister, and rest our souls here forever. 
Here let us learn all our Christianity. What is, this is what is typified in the gate of heaven, the city of refuge, Noah's ark, the brazen serpent. This is the one thing needful that we want to know. Oh, come, my dear sister, let me take you by the hand and show you one, even Jesus, the eternal word, the Lord Jehovah, groaning under the load of our sins, bearing them away in his own sacred body to eternal oblivion, drinking up the river of eternal wrath that was in our way, and encountering all our hell in order to rescue our souls from the jaws of the lion." A fourth theme of their preaching is justification by faith, faith alone. We have that blessed truth in Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They grasped that great Reformation and Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone. It was in a sermon on the text of Jeremiah 23, 6, the Lord our righteousness, that George Whitfield combined in one affirmation both Christ's substitution for sinners and that justification of sinners is wrought by God alone. He says, here then opens the amazing scene of divine philanthropy. I mean God's love to man. For behold, what man could not do Jesus Christ, the son of his father's love, undertakes to do for him. And that God might be just in justifying the ungodly, though he was in the form of God and therefore thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he took upon him the form of a servant, even human nature. In that nature he obeyed and thereby fulfilled the law, the the whole moral law in our stead, and also died a painful death upon the cross and thereby became a curse for for, or instead of those whom the Father had given him. As God, he satisfied all at the same time that he obeyed and suffered as man. And being God and man in one person, he wrought out in full, perfect, and sufficient righteousness for all to whom it was to be imputed. Yet another theme, a fifth theme of the preaching of these men was regeneration. The new birth. I'm told that someone must ask Wesley, why do you always preach? You must be born again. And he answered, because you must be born again. Indeed, there is no other answer to be given. You must be born again. Regeneration. They preach the absolute necessity of conversion. And this is one of the things that drew upon them the ire of the established church, which somehow or another, in the fog of unbelief, imagined that by going through the ropes of religion, they could somehow or another wind up in the end acceptable unto God. And to any who are thus deceived, these preachers were saying, no, no, you can do no good. You must be made new. You must partake of a life that is not your own. 
You must be resurrected from the death in your sin unto that life that Christ alone supplies. That's what they believed. They preached the absolute necessity of conversion, that true religion (coughs) is not simply opting for a change in behavior, a mere act of the will, or embracing a religious creed, but it involves an act of God raising the soul from death in sins to life in Christ and imparting of faith by the Holy Spirit of God. In a sermon on the new birth, expounding Christ's words to Nicodemus in John 3, 7, ye must be born again, Wesley repeatedly spoke of it as a work of God. He described it as the great work which God does in us in renewing our fallen nature, explaining how Adam by sin was rendered dead spiritually. Wesley continued, in Adam all die, all humankind, all the children of men who were then in Adam's loins. The natural consequence of this is that everyone descended from him comes into the world spiritually dead to God. Wesley continued, It is that great change which God works in the soul when he brings it into life, when he raises it from the death of sin to the life of righteousness. It is the change wrought in the whole soul by the Almighty Spirit of God when it is created anew in Christ Jesus, when it is renewed after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness, when the love of the world is changed into the love of God, pride into humility, passion into meekness, hatred, envy, malice, and a sincere, tender, disinterested love for all. This truth was powerfully proclaimed in a sermon by George Whitfield from the text in Jeremiah 6 and verse 14 in which the spiritual guides proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace. Whitfield exhorted, my friends, We make a historical faith, we mistake a historical faith for a true faith wrought in the heart by the Spirit of God. You fancy you believe because you believe there is such a book as we call the Bible? Because you go to church? All this you may do and have no true faith in Christ. Merely to believe there was such a person as Christ Merely to believe there is a book called the Bible will do you no good more than to believe there was such a man as Caesar, as Alexander the Great. Daniel Rowland affirmed eloquently that the salvation of the thief on the cross was an act of divine power. In this wonderful transaction, the omnipotence of God is displayed St. Chrysostom declares that this was a greater miracle than that the sun was darkened, that the earth was shaken, that the rocks were cleaved asunder, and that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. What was the darkening of the sun when compared with the enlightening of the darkened understanding? What was the cleaving of the rocks in comparison with the softening of the hard, stony, adamant heart? or the rending of the temple veil with the removal of the veil of ignorance from the soul. The rod with which Moses evidenced his divine mission 
is a strong confirmation as well as a permanent illustration of this truth. It had authority over the earth and the sea and the elements, light, darkness, and every, every creature within its reach were subject to its command. But it had no power or influence over Pharaoh's hard heart. Behold, it is easier to tear the rock in pieces than to melt the human heart. O oh, Jesus, none but thy spirit can do it. A sixth theme of their preaching was holiness. They taught constantly the inseparable connection between true faith and personal holiness. To a lady recently united with Christ by faith, Hal Harris wrote, Dear sister, bear with me. It is from a godly jealousy that I entreat you, entreat you to look carefully whether there will any, be any idols in your heart, anything nearer than Christ. Continuing in the same correspondence, he spoke of the saint's justification by faith and affirmed, seeing this, we cannot help surrendering our all to him, saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? How shall I improve every talent for thy glory? Oh, make me faithful, not that I may merit thy love, but because thou hast loved me freely. In a sermon on Judas' betrayal of Christ, John Wesley weighed heavily upon the text, Without holiness no man shall see the Lord. He warned, No, it cannot be. None shall live with God, but he that now lives to God. None shall enjoy the glory of God in heaven, but he that bears the image of God on earth. None that is not saved from sin here can be saved from hell hereafter. None can see the kingdom of God above unless the kingdom of God be in him now, below. Whoever will reign with Christ in heaven must have Christ reigning in him on earth. The final theme, and you've listened so very carefully and attentively, the final theme, God's love for sinners. They preached God's love for sinners. John Wesley exclaimed, Beloved, what manner of love is this wherewith God hath loved us so as to give us his only Son, in glory equal with the Father, in majesty co-eternal? What manner of love is this wherewith the only begotten Son of God hath loved us so as to empty himself as far as possible or his eternal, of his eternal Godhead? as to divest himself of that glory which he had with the Father before the world began, as to take upon him the form of a servant, being found in fashion as a man, and then to humble himself still further, being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Howell Harris wrote, Never did a kind mother love her own child with such care and tenderness as Christ loves his poor weak lambs. The weaker they are, the more they are entitled to his care and tenderness. To another he wrote, I am persuaded our dear Lord has loved you with an everlasting love and does often give you to taste of the same whilst others of your rank make themselves drunk with iniquity 
and move on hastily toward the bottomless pit. But oh, that free, sovereign, and everlasting love that calls those in time who were elected in eternity. What have we to do but admire more and more this wonderful subject and exclaim, Why me, Lord? Why me? Thus we have the kind of preaching done by early Methodist preachers. And a nation was transformed that grew forth from that transformation to be a world empire and to send that message to the uttermost parts of the earth. We look at the utterly pathetic condition of our nation. Impoverished with a poverty for which there is no means of measure. Destitute. Lost. Yesterday evening, my wife and I with our son were in downtown Greenville just to get a bite of dinner there and enjoy one another's companies. And as I saw the throngs coming and going, many of them costumed for the season, I thought to myself, how empty, how impoverished, and what sort of poverty this is. And I must say, I felt very much ill at home there. So much at home here. What does that mass of humanity need? Well, the very thing you've been taking to them. Such proclamation of these truths of Scripture as was made by the early Methodist preachers. May God make each one of us such a Methodist. Whether Presbyterian or Baptist, we can all be Methodists of this sort. And grant that we might live these truths with a life that supports the proclamation of them as well. And that both life and word from each of us might proclaim this world-changing truth. Shall we bow together as we pray? Our mighty God and faithful Father, what mercy and grace thou hast shed upon unworthy sinners such as we are, whose just deserts would be damnation this instant, but who by grace are saved through faith. We thank God that there has never been an age that is without testimony and without witness, and we thank you for the example of godly servants of the Almighty who have gone before us. And we pray that in their biblical proclamation of reality, we might be hearers, learners, and imitators, proclaiming the powerful word of God for the conversion of sinners by which comes the conversion of nations and the civilization built upon truth, the word of God. 
Bless our time together this day to your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.